Welcome to our podcast, What I Didn't Learn at Harvard, where super connectors who will be talking about how to network smartly in a post-pandemic world. I'm your host and moderator, Rajiv Jadav. I'm a reputation management strategist and social impact activist. My co-host is Victor Lee. He's our Harvard alum, and he will be guiding us through all the things he's learned about networking since he graduated. In the episodes that follow, you'll be hearing from experts who do networking well. Welcome to another exciting episode of Things I Didn't Learn at Harvard. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, David Safir. Hopefully, I didn't butcher your name too badly, but I'm sure you'll keep me honest momentarily. David, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, and you said my last name exactly right. Awesome, awesome. So I'm looking at David's LinkedIn And the headline reads as such, I help financial professionals earn 3,000 to 30,000 a month by providing cash flow advisory services. Most intriguing. Uh, Hit the follow below for daily content, questions, DM, anytime. I love that you're so uh, available and approachable. Uh, I'm looking further down on your uh, LinkedIn profile. I'm looking at the about section. And this, it mentions your telephone number and your email, david at davidsophia.com. Uh, and it says that you're globally recognized as a cash flow optimization expert. The cash uh, is clear uh, trademark learning systems, educate accountants on, and CFOs on cash flow and profit maximization strategies for their clients. And you work with hundreds of businesses with revenues ranging from 1 million to 20 million in 40 countries. Wow, 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 wow. That is most impressive, David, most impressive. Um, so I guess the I guess the question, let, let me ask you the, a question. The name of the product is Cash is Clear. How do you come up with that name and also why that name? Well, how did I come up with it? brainstorming it wasn't it was a labor of love over a period of a couple of years um wow. but the reason i settled on cash is clear is because i realized that when you're dealing specifically with cash flow and looking at cash reality it becomes clear do you have enough money to operate your business or not as opposed to our accounting systems, unfortunately, mask certain realities of life, certain realities of your bank account, and can be very confusing. So Cash is Clear was born, and people are responding very well to it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you said something about, I mean, there is quite a range in the kind of companies you work with. You said 1 million, 20 million. I mean, just between one and five million, that's quite a distinction. It doesn't seem too much of a distinction, but there sometimes can be a distinction, especially with operations and scale and complexity and things like that. 
So uh, I guess I uh, my question is between that range of 1 million to 20 million, do you have a sweet spot that you like to work with, but also why? So is there a sweet spot that I like to work with? No, um, not from a revenue perspective. My sweet spot is business owners and finance people who really want to understand how their cash is flowing. It's principles that we're dealing with, not operational details. And so the details can be stripped back, but they're, they're generally applicable principles that pertain to anybody. And so I guess I just answered both. No particular, and that's why. Okay, okay and you also said, I noticed that you're operational in 40 countries. So I guess my, my question, why I'm just so curious that, like, I guess the first country I'm assuming was the US. And can you guess or, or do you recall what the next five countries were? Well, so I've done business in over 40 countries over the course of my career. Okay. Uh, right now, I am working with people in the United States, Costa Rica, and Canada directly. Okay. I'm in conversations. Um, actually, I, I work with some people in India. Um, I'm in conversations with a group out of London. And I, I've got connections all over the world. And I've literally traveled to all 40 of those countries. Nice. I don't know how many I've worked with. A lot virtually. of miles, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of uh, Delta two and a half million miles on Delta and uh, don't really want to hit 3 million. It might happen some point. Okay. <laughs> well, David, so I take it that, you know, the principles you've developed, you know, are ones that you know, grew out of your corporate experience. I mean, and you've had some pretty senior positions, some pretty major brand names. I think, you know, there was Dell, there was Kodak um, and I think Seagate and, and some, and some others. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you built those businesses, the, the principles underlying those, because obviously you're not selling impulse purchase products. So I assume they were long sales cycles. You have to develop relationships with your customers. And so kind of tell us about how you, how you did that, if you could. So, uh, I, I'll get to how I did that, but let me tell you the paradox here. I did not learn how to understand uh, small business cash flow by working at large corporations. The last thing I had to worry about in, and That's I was a vice, I was the president of a wholly owned subsidiary, right? So I was responsible for everything. We never worried about cash flow. Oh, how funny. Okay. okay. But what I did learn was how to solve cash flow problems from large corporations because the same um, strategies that you can apply to a large corporation, you can apply to a small company. And so you said, well, how did we grow those? Or uh, in Kodak, we did a turnaround. And the answer was, you just start looking at everything from the top down, starting with sales. You ask yourself, am I selling to the right people? Am I selling the right product mix? And when you that then would impact as you make changes to the people you're selling to, the products you're selling to, impacts your gross margin. Sure. Right. Okay. You, you, you eliminate the losing products. You eliminate the, what I call you can't see, but I'm putting in air quotes, loser clients that you're losing money on. And all of a sudden your gross margin and grows. So you have more money to apply to the expenses. Then of course you scrub your expenses to make sure you're uh, applying adequately. And some of them will take care of themselves. When we were dealing with an international environment, um, if we dropped a client that was less money and at the time, very little was done virtually. 
it was that much less time and money that we had to spend traveling to that client sure. and more time and that we could apply that same amount with bigger results to another client. Okay, so and, expenses, and then, so clients could be expensive, not just because of the product mix, but because of the, the care and feeding of those. Oh, yeah. Right, right. And so, and a lot of times when you do a client analysis and you look at their margins, you're not even thinking about the care and feeding of the client. You're just looking at what are they buying and what's their margin they're generating for the company. Right. Oh, yeah. If you had to throw in the rest of it, um, then it could be losing a lot of money on some of your clients. That's interesting. So an, an overall profitability picture, not just focused on the on the product. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, so here's the other thing I learned, Victor and Rajiv, is that uh, large companies operate in silos. And I dealt with small teams. We could put all of our key people in one room and we broke down the silos. It okay. wasn't anybody's fault and it wasn't anybody's complete responsibility. It was a collective result and it was a collective responsibility to turn around. At Kodak, I was given a year to turn it around and we were shutting down oh, wow. that division. That's and motivation. people knew it. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and people, they've been losing money for too long. It's like, we don't need this revenue. We don't need the headache. We've got a leak in the boat. Let's plug the leak. And how, so how did you plug the leak? Oh, well, we did. Uh, uh, well, exactly what I told you. That was part of it. The starting oh, with clients. So product mix was a huge part of it. Um, another big part of it was dealing with Latin America. Certain countries impose import fees and a major market down there, we were able to um, take advantage of certain tax laws by moving a very small piece of the operational um, fabrication down to um, Manaus, Brazil. And we eliminated a 40% tax, wow. which allowed wow. us to lower the, yeah, I mean, 40% is huge. We actually lowered the price. So we were more competitive in the marketplace and made more margin still. I mean, I think we've lowered so, David, our price 15%. David, I got to yes. ask you, right? So first of all, props to you for that amazing, you know, making 40% is just tremendous. That's just tremendous straight off the bat. But I got to ask, like, how did you come up or how did you know that by moving the operation to Manaus, you would then save 40%? Did you, like, I guess the question is, are you an expert in international law and international trade and all of that, or how did that insight come about? I am an, a mile wide and an inch or two deep with most topics, with the exception of small business cash flow. Okay. What happened was I listened to my people in in Brazil. They said we're we're losing out to this competitor. The our competitor was already doing this. They said, oh. Well, why aren't we doing this? When I took over, so well, why aren't we doing it? Because nobody will listen to us, David. Oh, and so I said, okay. ah, okay, let me go work with the people in operations who can make this work and get it done. Was it easy? No. Was it um, time consuming? Yes. But if that's a key lever, and it was one of our largest revenue streams, then you go and make it work. But you listen to the people who you're, who are in the street. I mean, that's one of the big, Victor, you're asking about lessons. Listen to your salespeople. Yeah. Uh, salespeople get a bad rap sometimes, but, and there's some salespeople you shouldn't listen to. They're in it for themselves. <laughs> right. But most salespeople, all they want to do is help their clients and help your company 
and they can give you extremely practical ways to fix things. So that's what I did, Rajiv. Yeah, so I, I guess, David, I mean, again, so first of all, I mean, you're demonstrating, I think, all the textbook best practices of, uh, you know, like business as well as like listening to your people on the ground. But I guess my question, David, is like, how do you actually do that? Because, yes, I mean, theoretically, it sounds like a super feasible and smart idea of listening to your sales force. But then actually, how do you do that? What's the mechanism with which they can feed information back to you? Was there like an intermediary? Did you have a town hall? Like, how did that happen? So let me give you an idea of the scope of the size of the organization. I had 75 people reporting to me. That's directly, a lot. Well, most of them indirectly, right? I mean, through a team of managers. But when I would go to a place like Brazil, we would get together and we would talk, go out to dinner. Uh, so here's one of my key things. People will open up to you much more outside of the work environment than they will in the work environment, especially over meals. Right. And drink, right? Breakfast. Pardon me. <laughs> and drink, right? And, and drinks. You know, uh, <laughs> but one of my deals is I don't try to get people to go out after work for drinks. Oh, okay. I guess dinner, right? Dinner and drinks, right? So, um, so, and you sit with different people and you don't just listen to your top people. You end up forming relationships with the, the frontline people. Now, it doesn't mean they're constantly calling me or anything else like that. It just means that I would listen to them. And then when we had to do further communications, I worked through their managers. And so, Dave, I mean, I think your story is a great one in and of itself, obviously saved a pile of money and, you know, really helped the business. But I assume that also, you know, beyond that, it kind of helped change the culture of the place. Once people saw that, oh, yeah, the Brazilian guys raised an issue and they didn't all get fired for it. I assume that you know, hopefully more more great ideas bubbled up from the bottom. Well, they did. Um it was a constant improvement. You end up doing continual improvement from there, right? You, sure. you hit your low-hanging fruit. And that was this great big piece of low-hanging fruit. Well, it wasn't really hope. It was a great big piece of high-hanging fruit, right? right? Yeah. It wasn't <laughs> easy. Okay, it was right. a high-hanging fruit, but it was a great big piece. Uh, but then, yes, and we had a lot of open discussions. Um, pulling people together, for me, more than anything else, to share ideas and cross-pollinate from one marketplace to the other. Mm. Latin America is not a market. Every single country is a market. And right. when you get people from Argentina with Brazil, um, or we had a Pan-American uh, meeting once in Guadalajara where everybody from all over Latin America costs a fortune. Sure. Right? Theoretically, it costs a fortune, but the results were they had relationships that they could work with each other and cross-pollinate ideas and be able to lubricate um, doing business internally. So it was much easier to get things done and spread around. And we have people supporting other countries, which is not normal in multinational businesses. It is normal in global businesses. Right. And Kodak was a global business. My little piece of it we were more like a multinational that we were making pan-regional. Right. So David, so you had all this great experience and obviously did a great job with, you know, multinational uh, parts of large global brands, you know, big companies and so on. So can you talk, talk tell us a little bit about your sort of journey from there? So what made, and Rajiv was sort of alluding to this earlier, what made you sort of end up saying, okay, my niche, you know, the area where you can add value is helping small businesses, you know, solve their cash flow problems. 
I started doing consulting work in 2002. We had our 20 year business anniversary last year. So that was great. Ah, that's well, great. I said, sorry, 2002. Right. Okay. Well, I was still a corporate America. And so we've been doing this for 20 years. And I was doing general consulting work. And um, people would call, it got started because people would call and say, hey, David, can you help me with something? And I had enough background. But in 2018, I said, I want to specialize. And I sort of mapped out what is everybody asking for me and I asking from me. Right. And I realized at the end of the day, they all had cash flow issues that were not being called cash flow issues. They were being called sales issues, marketing issues, um, inventory issues, production issues. Oh, that's but at the end of the day, they were all worried about their bottom line profit and how much money was in the bank. Okay. And then I said, well, what's out there that talks about this? And I would find these articles, five things to fix your cash flow, seven things to fix your cash flow, 10 things. And they were all the same things, just being recombined with one exception. Whatever the last thing in was the, from the article was what the author of the article, their company sold that product or service. Oh, how funny. Okay. Got it. And I'm sitting there going, man, I think I could think of like 99 different ways I could help people with their, improve their cash flow. And then lo and behold, I start writing them down and I get to 99. I just keep going. I'm up to 193, 94. <laughs> I've got a couple in my notebook that haven't been added to the list yet. There's a massive number of ways to optimize cash flow that companies just are not aware of because we're not taught how to really deal with cash flow. Okay. So can you give us some, ex I mean, some examples of what these ideas are and, and do they fit into certain buckets? Uh, yes, you can bucketize them by your financial spreadsheets. That's how I've divided them, not the financial spreadsheet, your financial reports, net, right? Okay. Balance sheet, uh, pr profit and loss. And I alluded to that earlier when I talked about do a customer analysis and get rid of your lowest earning customers or get them to be more profitable. That's one idea. That one's sort of uh, not really obvious because most people won't do it, but that one's... okay. That's a good one. The same thing with product mix. Let me tell you, one of the, my favorite things is give me the prototypical stereotype, how to improve your cash flow, and I will give you the opposite advice under the right circumstances. Everything is circumstantial. circumstantial. And I'll give you on Victor, you've got this look on your face like, David, what the hell are you talking about? What are you talking about? Yeah, right. okay. Right. I can't what wait are you to talking hear this. About? And so I will, here's a piece of advice. Everybody says you need to collect your accounts payable faster. And I say, well, do you, if you have enough money in the bank, you could be extending your accounts payable and charging them interest. If you can get 2% a month from your clients, you can't get that from a bank. Oh, that's interesting. Boy, I've never heard it. So you're saying stretch out your AR. Not it, it depends but under the right circumstances. Absolutely. But we've all heard of this. Have you guys ever been up at night and you're watching an infomercial and they say, listen, it's either $9.99, but we're going to make it easy on you. Three easy payments of $29.99 each. Right. Yes. Is that right? $34.99, whatever it is, <laughs> sure. it comes out to more money, a lot more money, right. 15, 20, 30% more money by doing monthly installment payments. God, that's really interesting. Okay. 
So if you want to optimize your cash flow, which means bring as much revenue, cash, and um, profit into the company as possible, you know, give them terms. Let oh, let them stretch it out, but then the amount goes way but, up. But they're going to pay for that convenience, absolutely. Okay, and it's the same thing. Here's the other prototypical: don't pay your vendors quickly. Stretch out your payments, and sure. I'm sitting there going, really. Have you ever tried to buy something for cash and, and ask for a concession? Oh, so it's the exact opposite of what you had just said about your receivables. Absolutely. Yeah. If you Again, if you've got the cash in the bank. Now, here's the tricky part. You've got to know that it's not just in the bank today, but you're going to have enough to pay your bills in a month or two months, right. et cetera. But ask sometime if you're ever having work done on your apartment, on your car. Victor, New York City, cash. They will give you discounts every day. Yeah. In in the smaller places, they will give you discounts. So I ask my roofer, I've got to put a new roof on the house. And I say, well, listen, here's your quote. I'm going to, this is approximately right, $13,000 to put a roof on my house. Okay. So what if I paid you cash? I paid you half now and half when you're done. And we didn't go through financing. I didn't write you a check. And he said, $10,000. Wow. Okay. That's so, a lot of money. That's a lot of money that you just saved. Okay. Right. And so do you think that there aren't businesses out there that business to business transactions, right. That wouldn't say, yes, I will discount my price if you will pay more. I mean, in theory, there's this standard accounting, uh, 30, uh, 2% net 30. Yeah, net 30. Means, yeah. Yeah. Net two, but 2%, 2 means you net, pay early yeah. and get 2% off. Right. 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 And so it's just taking that and extending it, except we just don't think about it in those terms. And let me give you one other. Let's and let's say you don't get a discount. Why would you pay your vendors early? What's your incentive? Now, maybe for a lot of them, there's no incentive. But if you're working with the small vendor and especially one that's a specialty vendor, who do you think they're going to ship to if there's a Service. shortage? Okay. Service, right. Who do you think right. is going to get better service? Who do you think is going to do That's you a favor? Okay. Who do you think is going to say, hey, we need that ship faster. Can you can you jump through a hoop for me? Right. Them or the guys who are paying chronically late, who are they going to service better? <laughs> sure. That's interesting. Now, and which is interesting because it's, I mean, it affects your cash flow negatively in the short term, but it's a strategic, it makes strategic sense. Absolutely. So, okay. Right. And, and when you say affects your cash flow negatively, it means it reduces the amount of cash in your bank. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. But um, but that's I would pause. I would say that if you've got enough cash, which you need to know how much is enough. Right. Then it's not really negative. It's not impacting your cash flow negatively per se. It's just changing your cash flow. Okay. Because that that has an emotional connotation to it, which isn't the case. Sure. Okay. All so the you've time. got so now you've got these two hundred ish rules that you've right. that you've you've come up with. And so, by you, the way, uh, is there a book? Not yet. Yes, yeah, there is. Okay. There's a I course. Think we need to have a separate conversation. Stay, on stay that. tuned. There, there is a course, right? So yeah, yeah, I do. That you've been yeah. given, right? Right, Tactic. right. And, and and this is where I teach um, accountants, bookkeepers, um, and other financial professionals how to do this type of thing, how to think about it. And they're introduced to all these different methodologies because they're not, they haven't been in sales. They haven't been in marketing. They haven't been in operations. 
And so they need help understanding all these different levers that can be pulled because they are numbers people sitting at a desk most of the time. They just need to be educated. Right. Well, that's what I think is so interesting about your business, Dave, because like the things you just said about your, your accounts receivable and your accounts payable, your business is kind of counterintuitive, right? What people I think would, the, the first impulse would be, well, I have all, the, I know all the stuff about cash flow. I'll just teach my clients and they'll pay me. But that's not really you. And and the, and the, and the second would be, oh, I'll become a, you know, I'll teach people like with this course and you know, to small businesses, but that's not what you do either. Your courses and your and all the information you're creating is to like you just said is to teach financial principle financial intermediaries like accountants and bookkeepers so they can teach their clients and so i guess my question is why why did you do it that way i did also the more obvious I, I, I didn't at first i came out with a course for business owners okay and i found out who was buying it was bookkeepers and accountants and I said, oh my goodness, of course, these business owners, small business owners have a very good technical skill. They are not necessarily business people. And it's the people who support them that they're gonna want to learn how to, how to get better support. So I shifted in, um, I launched the original course at the end of 2009, well, whatever it was doesn't matter when. A year later, I, I launched the course and the program for accountants and, and bookkeepers because I needed to add on significant additional layers to be able to provide that support, not just teach the principles and the tactics. See, I, I think that's another great lesson, right? Because you do hear a lot of people talking about stuff like product market fit, right? And which kind of assumes that you can do it in advance. I'm going to create a widget and it's going to be bought by people like whatever, right, to solve the particular problems that they have. And you're saying you put the product out there, and instead of the people you thought were going to buy it, it was bought by another bunch of people. So you pivoted, if, it, if this is fair, to That's say, right. okay, I'm going to create products for people who are buying my stuff. Right. Right. Rather than so trying they'll... to force my product into people who don't seem to want to buy it, buy the, my stuff. Absolutely. Does yeah. it mean that I don't have materials that support the, the business owner? No, but that's more strategy. It's more mindset, right? Right. I mean, this is a complete departure from your accounting. Here, here's where I learned it. Here's the little story, Victor okay. and Rajiv. I go to my first, I did a full-time consulting work for a company at one point, and it was very much recovery work and turnaround work. I walk in um, West Virginia, the guy, it just, the, the term grizzled, you know, he <laughs> just, great guy, great family business, but he turns to me and he pulls out a sheaf of papers and he's, he's in tears saying, David, my accountant told me that I made $250,000 last year and I don't have any money in my bank to make payroll in two weeks and he can't explain to me why oh boy i need help and that's where i that's where i started unraveling this in my own yeah. mind now i was given some tools i knew some of things but i realized this massive disconnect between the accrual based accounting he had been given for reports 
and cash basis accounting would have been completely different. But even cash basis accounting masks all sorts of things. He had way too much inventory. Does that show up in the profit and losses and expense? No. No, it sh- it shows up as an asset. Right. So at the end of the day, his a big chunk of his cash was in his inventory. A big chunk of his cash was in stuff that he had traded and it was off the book sitting in his yard, $50,000 worth of diesel generators and some other stuff <laughs> okay. that he took the revenue in and never, anyhow, I, right. okay. there was all sorts of hidden pockets of cash all over his company. Um, and um, we spent three weeks unraveling it and it turned, it completely changed his uh, business and it yeah. changed my life from a, being able to think about uh, very differently. Okay. Wow. That's great. Well, well David, that, that's quite a s- story arc, right? From I think where you started in, in corporate life doing the, you know, the, the corporate stuff, albeit on a global <laughs> basis, you know, big brand names to where you are today, where it really seems like, you know, you, you almost, it's almost like you're providing the most value for the largest number of people by doing what you're doing, by really taking all the experiences you've had, all the lessons you've learned, the 200 rules you created, right? And really finding a way to get that out there to lots of different people. So- That's my goal. That's, yeah, that, that's fabulous. Yeah, the, the goal is to impact the lives of people by improving the financial stability of smaller companies. Right. And I don't wanna do 10 or 20 or hundreds but thousands, hundreds of thousands, and eventually millions, because they have a different way, if nothing else, to think. Right. This is a thought process just as much as anything else. And if people can really stop saying cash is king and start treating it as such, (laughs) then there's going to be a big change in to literally decrease the number of business failures, whether it's in the United States or in other parts of the world. This is the biggest reason companies fail is because of cash flow issues. But they don't realize it. And so instead they resort to things like, oh, we'll just do layoffs or we'll, you know. Or or they'll borrow money and get themselves into bigger challenges because they're not fixing the root cause. Right, right. They're covering up the symptom. Lack of cash in the bank account is a symptom of something much deeper. Right, okay. So, so I mean, and that so that helps the businesses survive, and if the businesses survive, then they continue to support the employees. So, well, and and then the multiplier effect of the company's company owners' families, right? Yes, and the employees' families, right? And their vendors that they're not going to bankrupt, that they're not going to welch. Well, it's not welching; it's it, it's not being able to pay, right? And the clients, some of these are mission critical companies right and so their clients it's not like well fine i won't buy from target i'll go to walmart it's most of these smaller businesses are are local treasures right or have very specific niches more on a national or global level that they're specialty companies well i i think it's great that you're helping these companies like this david because it really has us you know people often think of business as being sort of you know heartless or you know just profit driven but there really is a tremendous social impact and benefit, you know, to the people, to the communities, uh, and everything. So I think, you know, I think it's great that you're trying to get the word out to try to help lots of people. And, you know, hopefully some of them will, you know, catch this on, on, on this podcast. So, you know, 
if I can help one person through this podcast, I hope I help dozens or hundreds <laughs> through the podcast. If I can help one company, there is a definitely multi-generational multiplier effect. Right. Fabulous. Th thank you so much, David. Really appreciate you taking the time. Rajiv, I don't know if you had any other questions. No, I think this was a great overview. I think, uh, David, you've extremely clearly and simply stated the benefit of what you do, but also given people a different perspective on how to look at cash and to really look at it, like you said, more as a symptom rather than just taking it at face value, which, which may not be the best way of looking at it. And uh, you've also outlined quite clearly as to how you approach it in this very consultative uh, uh, looking at things like really rolling up the sleeves and uh, diving into the numbers to uncover what lays hidden beneath. And I think that's tremendous. Uh, and I think would give a lot of listeners a lot of confidence in uh, reaching out to you so that you can uncover uh, what seems to be a mystery to them and give them some clarity, but more importantly, confidence as well in the days and months that lie ahead. So for that, David, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. And we would love to have you on the show again to uh, to touch on you know different aspects of what it is that you do. Because as you know, you can't eat an elephant in a single sitting. So you're going to have to take small little bites at it. So we would absolutely love to have you on again. Thank you both. It's been wonderful being here. It's been a great discussion. And I'd love to be back. I could talk about this all day. I know. We've only got a short amount of time, so I'll look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, David. Please send us your comments and questions about networking. You can email us at dintlearn at harvard at gmail.com. We'll be including this in the description, in the episode description. Try today's networking nugget and tell us whether it worked or if you hate it or if you'd like us to brainstorm a solution for you. No charge. That's our way of saying thank you for supporting us by listening and sharing our content with people you care about. That's all this week from Rajiv and Victor. Thanks for listening to Things I Didn't Learn at Harvard. Hopefully, you learned something here today.